In one week in April 1970, 17,000 mothers and their newborn babies were asked to take part in a survey to find out more about the first week of life. This became known as the 1970 British Cohort Study, BCS 70. The study followed these babies as they grew and continues to do so today. This year the study turns 50, and so welcome to 50 Years of Life in Britain, a podcast celebrating half a century of the 1970 British Cohort Study. I'm Lee Elliott Major, Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter, and I'll be your host over the next six episodes as we trace the story of BCS 70 across five decades and consider the future of this amazing study. In the last episode, we discovered how the study managed to survive funding cuts during the 1980s, and we heard how reading for pleasure was key when it comes to improving children's English and math skills. The ones that read for pleasure made more progress. They they scored more highly in vocabulary at age 16, but they also scored more highly in mathematics as well. And so, on to the 1990s. As the study entered the decade of Britpop, Blair and the dot-com boom, it moved from Neville Butler's shabby, chic Georgian mansion to City University, but it couldn't escape the effects of another recession. The 90s for me was definitely the favourite part of my life so far. Music-wise, Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, all the club music, that was the soundtrack of our lives for many years had a car, had a mortgage where I'd started to work um, and just really cracked on with being a married woman. I used to travel all over the country to parties in the middle of fields and used to love that freedom to meet people and feel kinship with them straight away. Great sporting moments like Euro 96. The big changes in technology, everyone using computers. I went to university and met people from different parts of the country, different religions, different parts of the world, and had time on my hands to explore ideas with these people, find out about their different perspectives, and it really helped me grow as a person. Getting my first mobile phone then, and then email coming on board with the internet. Those running the study worked on short-term contracts and the future of BCS 70 was under threat once again. However, by the mid-90s, it would be thrown a lifeline and as a new government came into power, its value to evidence and society finally became acknowledged. The study went from strength to strength. In this episode, I'll speak to Professor John Bunner and Dr Sam Parsons, whose stark findings about the poor levels of literacy and numeracy among British adults would go on to influence government policy for the next two decades. We'll also hear from the study participants who will tell us what they remember about joining the study again as adults after a decade-long gap. But first, I speak to survey manager Kate Smith and former director of the Centre for Longitudinal Studies, Professor Heather Joshi, about those topsy-turvy years in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Kate has been designing surveys at CLS, the home of BCS 70, for more than three decades. I asked her what she remembers from that time. 
It was my first real research job, but um, at the time that I joined in 1989, there was an awful lot of uncertainty about funding at that time. Cohort studies were not something that the current government, which was one of the Thatcher governments, were very keen on. They weren't really keen on the messages that were coming out of uh, cohort studies, which was largely about inequality. And so there wasn't a lot of interest um, in funding them. Mid-90s onwards with the change of government to the Labour government, very different times from 97 onwards. I mean, we received... um, not just recognition, but there, there was recognition amongst politicians um, of of the real value um, of the studies and what they could bring to the table. Can you remember when BCS 70 then moved to City University? Because that was in the early 90s. That's right. It was. It was um, around 91 that the um, um, BCS 70 came up from Bristol, where it was located uh, with Professor Neville Butler and John Bunner, um, who was director. He was really um, fundamental in bringing up um, and continuing the 1970 cohort. He did not want to see um, the 1970 cohort not continue. Were you involved in that um, funding that, that 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 you managed to get as a group in '96. Then the cohort members themselves hadn't had an in, uh, an interview with them or a visit since they were age 16 in 1986, and all the contact for that survey was done through the schools. And so with it moving um, to a new location um, and getting a new name for the study as well, we needed to establish whether we could actually find the cohort members as adults. So we launched a tracing exercise um, with our small tracing team to try and find them and to also then to contact them and see whether they'd be still be willing to take part in the study 10 years after it had, um, they'd last had a survey. Because obviously, I mean, the internet was in no way um, the internet that we have today. I mean, we were, we were very lucky in um, universities in that we had early, early types of the internet um, because it was sort of built as for academic networks but we certainly didn't have it for tracing people and sort of to find people in the way that you can do now and there were no social media sites in 1996 Um, so we had to do tracing sort of the old-fashioned way a lot of it was through um, sort of things like medical records and government records and school records and also writing to people at the last address that we had and an awful lot of it had to be done by mail So when the study came up to um, City University, what we did do was something that we were already doing for the 1958 cohort, which was to send an annual birthday card. And as part of that, we asked them to get back in contact with us if if they had changed their address and we'd managed to find them through through the postal service managing to forward it to them. Our team is quite large now, um, but it was just basically there were two of us (laughs) for the team as Peter Shepherd and myself. And so I, um, I, I designed the questionnaire and, um, yeah, sort of ran the survey, really, and did, did quite a lot of the analysis as well. There were times when we were on month-to-month contracts because we just didn't know when our next funding or whether our next funding uh, was coming through. And so you just had to sort of hope. <laughs> it's, 
It's one of the reasons I was 35 before I bought a house, because we were on such perilous, perilous contracts. Were there any moments where you found something or that was something that was really surprising or interesting? Well, I think from all cohorts, actually, what amazes me is that people are willing to give up significant portions of their time for no return other than a sort of social good. Um, the, because they don't get paid for it. The results, because of the nature of the surveys, take quite a long time often to come out. They don't get an immediate return in any sense of the word. So it always amazed me how committed and that they continue to be committed and continue to give us their time and, and in many times personal information and sometimes biological specimens. Um, and that's, that amazes me. The commitment of the study members really amazes me. Professor Heather Joshi is currently Emeritus Professor of Economic and Developmental Demography at the UCL Institute of Education and a former director of the Centre for Longitudinal Studies. She recalls those uncertain times in the early 1990s and reflects on the successful Age 26 survey. So I was deputy director when the 1970 cohort got its new lease of life. This was in... 1996. As usual, the cohort studies were in a state of not knowing whether they were going to continue, but there was a, a lobby to rescue the 1970 cohort from oblivion. And we were delighted and surprised to get, at short notice, enough money to do a postal survey when there were 26. And so everybody in the team at City was uh, all hands to the wheels to write a uh, an initial description of uh, what was found in that survey. We got responses from 9,003 cohort members, which wasn't as many as we later made contact with, but they provided evidence that this was a cohort of young people who were having quite a different experience from the cohort born uh, 12 years earlier, the 1958 cohort. They'd left school at a time when the labour market was uh, down, so there was a, a lot of unemployment. Many of them had been on the youth training scheme, but they'd spent more time in education, and particularly the girls had spent more time in education, and they were rapidly overtaking the boys uh, in academic attainments, You know, especially at school level, but they're Almost as many of them had degrees as the Bens, which hadn't been the case in the past. Even the 1946 cohort had so tiny numbers of female graduates. The whole experience of the transition to adulthood seemed to have slowed down. More education, more staying at home with parents, particularly the men, less partnering, less childbearing in their 20s, particularly men. There was a uh, still as quite a substantial minority of the 1970 women who'd become teenage mothers, same proportion as in the 1958 cohort. But apart from that, uh, the more educated women in the 1970 cohort were staying out of motherhood until their 30s, and the men even longer. We could see that they were, they were set to have a rather different experience of adulthood than the uh, 1958 cohort who we were busily studying at the same time. We're also lucky enough to feature voices from the study itself. Joe and Liz are both in the BCS70 cohort 
and they share their memories of joining the study again at age 26 after a 10-year gap. I was an adult then, you know, I'd been to university, I'd got a job, I was sort of settled in a relationship and I remember when I got in touch because I I like questionnaires so I sort of remember things about that and I think it was more sort of attitudinal, you know, putting your opinions across and although I think we'd done that as a teenager, I think it was a little bit more and looking at how, you know, obviously how life had been over those past 10 years so, you know, I always would spend quite a bit of time thinking about it, you know, when I was responding to answers but I think I remember it was I think it was quite a big questionnaire I think at that point in time and I think it was starting to think more broadly as well not just about yeah about your life but about society and wider things that were going on as well. The survey came out I think when we were in our mid-20s probably around age 26 and we hadn't had any contact since the age of 16 when we'd had this incredibly long survey to complete lots of questionnaires very intrusive questions and then it all went quiet at that stage I was actually working in Africa and somehow the survey still managed to reach me I think it was probably via my parents or I can't even remember how it got to me you know, I feel as if it is truly an observational study that we've just been allowed to get on with our lives and from time to time we're asked to report how our lives are going. So I don't remember a great deal about the survey when I was in my mid-twenties and I suspect it's because the other things in my life were happening and it was a very busy, exciting time. But I can remember feeling pleased that the cohort hadn't gone away, that it was still there and it was still part of my life. After taking part in 10 surveys, answering thousands of questions and taking part in countless cognitive and physical assessments, the study members have given us a wealth of invaluable information about life in Britain at various points of time. Here's a snapshot of the country from the mid-90s. At age 26, 6 in 10 participants were living with a spouse or cohabiting partner. 7 in 10 felt that the death penalty was appropriate for certain crimes. A quarter smoked every day. 13% never drank alcohol or only drank on special occasions. 40% owned their own home and 20% lived with parents. One in three women had become mothers. One in five men had become fathers. 7 in 10 felt that there should be more women bosses in important jobs in business and industry. Professor John Bunner, former director of BCS70, and Dr Sam Parsons, research officer at the UCL Institute of Education, conducted influential research on adult literacy and numeracy in the 1990s and new millennium. It went on to underpin a series of important government education initiatives over the next two decades, including Sure Start and Skills for Life. First of all, we speak to Professor Bunner about his research on basic skills, which used data from the Age 21 substudy. These findings came to the attention of Chairman of the Basic Skills Agency, Lord Klaus Moser. Moser went on to cite them in his 1999 government report, which looked at the worryingly low literacy and numeracy levels in the UK in comparison with other developed nations. I asked John whether he could remember when Lord Moser first became interested in the research. OK, well, we had done some initial work with the Basic Skills Agency. It wasn't based on big surveys or anything. And it was drawing, I think, on the 58 cohort from way back. 
But how we got involved was that I had done work initially for Alan Wells of the Basic Skills Agency through data that had been produced by Neville Butler originally, a, a project that he had hoped to do himself years back. Because of the money that came forward from um, Neville Butler, uh, from Paul Hamlin on the one hand, the Basic Skills Agency decided to top that up with some money of their own. So none of this came from government or research councils or anything. And we then um, put together a survey at age 21, which enabled us then to um, go much further into all these issues. And a package was put together that would enable a 10% sample to be covered in a survey. And they had impressed Alan Wells a lot. He'd been able to use the data we produced hugely about the effects basic skills in adulthood or lack of them would have on progress and the quality of life generally. That was point one. But the second, which I think in many respects, Lord Moser and um, people like Richard Layard found particularly interesting, was numeracy was very, very poor by the standards of anybody. You know, almost half the population were, were operating at the age of a 10-year-old or something on numeracy. The decision to launch a program on basic skills and which led to the Moser report as it came to be known was very much part of the new Labour government coming into operation. They really believed that it was time to tackle the basic skills issue. We were comparing badly with other countries over literacy and numeracy. You can begin to unpin this in the sense of various kinds of experience or lack of it, or poor teaching, or illness. There are a whole string of things which you can begin to un unravel. And this becomes enormously important, as I say. Are you, have you, or the Moser Committee, for example, that was set up by the Labour government at the time to look at the whole business of base, adult basic skills and what could be done to improve them. And that was a brilliant report, in fact, in many respects, but it uncovered all these issues in enormous depth and it used the birth cohort studies hugely to provide the evidence base for what it, they wanted to come up with and then the policy proposals that came out of that. 18 years is a long time uh, so you would have done many analyses on, on this but was there any particular sh shock finding if you like around adult skills? Well I think the main shock was that these problems existed and that they, they were not spotted at childhood. Up to about 20 to 30 percent of the population has poor literacy and of that about 7 to 10 percent are really close to illiteracy so that is, was a great shock initially. In, in relation to um, numeracy, half the population are in that low to bottom category which is very, very striking because what, are, what is the education system doing if it mm. misses this when children are passing through it? Lord Moses' report made the case for launching Skills for Life, a major new Labour government policy to tackle the literacy, language and numeracy needs of the country's adults. Sue Pember is a former policymaker and was given the responsibility for rolling out Skills for Life in the new millennium. I started by asking Sue how the BCS70 study helped her to champion this policy. Back in the 1970 cohort, um, a report was written on the basic skills that fed into the Moser report 
in 1998. So it, you know, there's a sort of that that sort of um, information was the grounding that made Lord Moser determine to write a report um, that brought out the inadequacies of the system and explain, you know, what was happening to young people in literacy at the age of 16 and then adults 19 um, onwards. Um, so without the, the cohort study, um, Lord Moser wouldn't have had the evidence for his report. And then without the Moser report, government um, in... Uh, uh, David Blunkett and Baroness Blackstone, which were the two ministers at the time that absolutely championed this, um, without them saying that they would um, implement uh, Lord Moses' report, without them making that commitment, and they were only making that commitment because of the cohort study. So it was like one built upon the other. So it was an incredibly important uh, piece of research work. And then um, we also used it in 2004. We took one of those cohorts in 2004 and we did a further test with them on literacy that said, we're going to test people with these questions um, and which were built on the cohorts, quite original questions, but took it a bit further. It added an IT test to it. And then that study turned into a, a much bigger um, wider study, which was about um, a, the whole sector cohort, which was um, done twice before the Skills Initiative actually uh, stopped. But it was one of those things that, you know, if you, we didn't have the, the, the first part of it, so if we didn't have the birth cohort study, we wouldn't have had Moser, we wouldn't have then had Skills for Life, we wouldn't have had the secondary assessment, and then we wouldn't have had the third assessment that showed how impactful the Skills for Life strategy had. So there's a direct storyline there that one builds on the other. And what was the actual finding? Uh, what, what Was it a shocking finding? What, what was the headline finding? Seven million people with a literacy and numeracy problem. It was shocking. So you're talking about one in five of the population there had skills less than what you'd expect of an 11-year-old. So they couldn't read the the front of their prescription bottle. You know, they couldn't read the back of the, the Mestos bottle. Um, you know, it showed that there was an issue in why they got jobs or didn't get jobs, why they got the jobs that they did get, why they didn't stay in a job. But also it, it showed how it affected the rest of their life. You know, so if you've got poor literacy skills, you're more likely to be in prison. If you've got poor literacy skills, you're more likely to get in debt. If you've got poor literacy skills, your children are more likely to not read themselves. Um, so it was, it was, I think, quite shocking. And that's why David Blunkett was able to use the word a crusade. You know, he had, he really felt passionately about this, that we really had to um, let people know that, you know, if you've got a poor skill, then, well, don't worry about it. We could do something for you. But also to, to explain to employers why they were being less productive. And in a way, that's why productivity, as though it's not actually part of the productivity calculation um, skill level, but, you know, it, it seems to be obvious to me if we've got a country that's got poor productivity and we've got a country that's got, you know, one in five of their population with poor skills, there must be a correlation there. And if we can improve the skills level, then we improve the productivity level. So can you tell us then how this then helped you shape 
the uh, skills policy that you led uh, then. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been trying to do? So first of all, the Mosin report left us with or gave us, um, uh, I think it was 12 really good recommendations that needed to be acted upon. Um, those recommendations, as we just pointed out, were just in literacy. So we broaden it to do numeracy as well. Um, that turned then into a strategy called the Skills for Life strategy that was published in March 2001. Mum, how do you spell choir? Uh, mm. That's a tough one, isn't it? Um, you don't know, do you? Um, Mummy can't spell. Oh, this is so embarrassing. Don't put it off. Get rid of your reading, writing or maths gremlins. For free courses, call 0800 100 900. Right, next one up is going to be... Freddy! No, no, you don't want to see me sing. Freddy! What's your problem? You're worried about reading your words. If you're frustrated by your reading, writing or maths, call 08000 150 650. Get rid of your gremlins and get on. That strategy brought together, well, brought together government, really. So although um, I was based in the Department for Education um, and Employment, um, the department split a few, I think it was that year, and you got the Department DWP and you got Education as a you know, split, so employment was removed. However, um, that coming together of DWP and DFE was incredibly important because this couldn't be seen as an issue just for education. It had to be seen as an issue for work, but also um, the rest of government needed to get involved. So we had, first of all, we had a um, a cross-government group of ministers, which involved um, the, the, the MOD, it involved the health service. So the first thing that, that was good about the strategy, um, that it was led by government, um, by a cross-government group of ministers, and each of those government ministers had a target. So we were, it was of the days um, where um, the new Labour government was very keen on their performance targets and um, in a way that focused the mind. So we had a target to get 750,000 people through their first you know, upper level you know, within three years. So that actually targeted, it was a target not just for ministers and departments, that target was used by a teacher. It was all the way down the system and all the way back. We sort of drilled down, people knew, people were trained and they were felt that they were part of this bigger picture um, you know, and there's people out there now, 20 years on, that were trained originally um, in, in 2004 5 and still look back to that time as the best, you know, fundamental training they could have. You know, David Blunkett particularly did use this as terminology crusade, and he would come to like mass gatherings of like 1500 teachers um, in conference centres to say how important that their work was. If we roll on to 2011, and where the, the, the test was repeated with this wider cohort. That research shows that over 14 million people improved their skills. It was one of the largest social interventions we've ever tried in England. 
and it absolutely worked. But it still had gaps. It didn't do very well with the lowest levels, but it did very well to get people into a level two, which was, in a way, one of the target groups, because if you can get people to a level two, it makes a big difference to their employment going forward um, and to their salary level. So that was what you know the strategy was aiming for. So it demonstrated that we can do it as a country. So the strategy was successful, met its targets early, went on to ensure that between 2001 and 2011, 14 million participated in adult literacy and numeracy activities and over 8 million qualifications achieved, which produced a 13% improvement in literacy. Dr Sam Parsons worked closely with Professor Bunner on a number of BCS70 studies looking at basic skills during the 1990s and 2000s. She was funded by the Skills for Life initiative to conduct further literacy and numeracy research in the new millennium. Here, Sam talks about her memories of working on the study in the 1990s and reflects on her basic skills research. Well, I joined in 95 um, and I was, um, I particularly worked with John and I started on NCDS, so the older cohort. That was when BCS 71st really came to us. So the first one they did, what was it? It was in 1996, so when they were 26. And it, we were such a small unit then sort of really on a shoestring, particularly the, you know, the survey team. So I was very involved in the age 34 data, um, sort of putting the questionnaires together and all aspects of it. But since then, it's become more... Well, but there's a whole survey team now. It's more split between survey team and researchers, whereas it was more fluid before through a need because there wasn't so many people actually working there. Because the other thing that's coming across with all these interviews, I suppose, is that it does depend on individuals championing the cause on this. It has depended on people actually getting that support for the, the surveys. Yeah, and John was brilliant at that. So, no, I wasn't involved in the fundraising at all. I was his research assistant, really. It was all part of John's... Um, he had a bit of a master plan of trying to get them interviewed at very similar age points so that you can allow for all these cross-cohort comparisons. And I think that f it finally brought them up to the level of the um, 58 cohort, which had always previously had this, you know, higher status. But once they were brought in line, it created this great opportunity for cross-cohort comparison. And I think they were absolutely valued from then on, just equally. So what did you show then about adult basic skills? Because you were involved with that study, particularly on the 34 sweep, yeah. I believe. So can you tell us a little bit about, well, one, I guess, why you wanted to look into that? How did that emerge as an interest as a group, and, and what did you find? With this great interest from the then government uh, and the Skills for Life, they, they put an enormous lot of money into it. And so they funded this big, um, the National Research Centre for Adult Literacy and Numeracy, who in turn funded the cohorts to be able to assess the literacy and numeracy skills of everybody who took part in the Age 34 sweep. So we found that there was 8% of BCS who, at age 34, had very poor literacy skills and 40% had very poor numeracy skills. And what that equates to in the language of the um, Skills for Life survey levels and everything, it means that, that that proportion of people had the skills of 
no higher than an than an eleven year old that would be expected on average of an eleven year old, which is, I mean, that's a bit of a, a headline grabbing way of putting it, but it's it's quite shocking that to be that low. By being able to look at all of the data that we have, we produce a lot of publications from that, and and we really showed the disadvantage that these men and women had across all the domains of adult life, you know, from in work, income, housing, family life, their health and mental well-being was was poor, all of it was poorer. Um, And also that their children, particularly those who had the poorest skills, so entry level two, which was actually, they're even worse, that's kind of um, seven to nine-year-olds, equivalent skills, that their children were had much poorer reading and math scores compared to the other children that we also interviewed or completed the assessments with. We couldn't do all of them, but for one in two sample, we also assessed the uh, reading and math skills of all of their children. Well, all of their children who were aged three and above. Um, and so then for you can look at the you know, intergenerational transfers, if you like. So you found these very stark gaps in both uh, numeracy and literacy. Were those children or adults, particularly from poorer backgrounds? Absolutely. I mean, not all. It's never an all. But far more proportionately, obviously, from disadvantaged backgrounds, you know, uh, social housing, very low income, overcrowded home parents with low-level qualifications. And did you find that there was uh, an intergenerational link, so that, that if your parents uh, struggled with basic skills, then you're more likely as a child to grow up uh, in, yes. in the same way? Yeah. I mean, because it's like probably like now with this COVID business, um, you know, the, the gap, you know, the children, you know, those who those are more in the haven't got as opposed to the have got are less likely, you know, they're not so much involved with the, you know, teaching at home because the parents probably aren't so able and they're not so engaged, perhaps because of facilities or space to do the online stuff with their schools. For the children with additional needs, I think there's exponentially going to be, um, you know, put back further. That work, that had a lot of policy impact, both nationally and internationally. Um, And various government ministers referred to the work in the House of Commons debates and select committee hearings. And it's also informed a range of government policies, such as the introduction of the literacy hour in schools and uh, early initiatives such as Sure Start and the government-sponsored Early Intervention Foundation. And this wasn't even established until 2013. So it continued to have influence. And also, um, governments in Australia and New Zealand have used, have used the findings to inform their, their own policies on adult literacy and, and children's literacy. And also, because of how it was funding, if you like, from government, you were able to produce very accessible reports we would roll them out at conferences quite a lot and a lot did sometimes with teachers or or those involved in adult education were really sort of interested in the in them and said it they the research really spoke to them and reflected the adults who who they were um involved with james is one of the study members still filling out his surveys in now his 50th year he reflects on his contribution to a wider understanding of generation x Likewise, Sam, who shows the pride she takes in contributing to BCS 70. I think I've always liked 
to contribute to the research things are released from the study aren't they so they find out that actually reading to children um, in their early years naught to five actually makes a massive impact on their comprehension as they go through secondary school and learning and can impact on GCSE results and things like that so I think when you know that you've contributed to that kind of research that helps shape how people can have better outcomes for their own children it makes you feel like actually I'm still I'm doing something worthwhile here um, that can help other people better their lives or their children's lives and so I think it probably ticks a bit of an altruistic box for me I've always been, yeah, really uh, keen to take part um, and I, th- I find it really interesting as well when you get on your the birthday and, you know, occasionally you send through sort of the findings of the survey or where it's been covered in the newspapers um, and I know you did that particularly this year for the 50th but um, before when you've done that in small pamphlet form, I've always found that really interesting because often you do read things in the papers 50 year olds nowadays think like this and you sort of read it and you don't and then it's at the bottom when he said nine you know the cohort study and you think oh hang on a minute that's that's um that's the study i'm in but i feel quite um you know lucky and honored to be part of it these sort of studies are, are sort of invaluable really you know i genuinely think they do make a difference and can influence politics and policy and things like that so I think just by, you know, you're making a bit of a contribution to that. I feel like the cohort members have got the easy part of the deal because we get to answer lots of questions about ourselves um, and then someone goes and crunches all the data and that's the hard part. You know, this is real research, it's, a re- it's real people taking part. Um, And I think, you know, that's what's important. People need to trust the science. So I think it's important to know that we are part of a bona fide group. Next time, we'll move into the new millennium as the study enjoyed a golden decade. With BCS70 becoming greatly valued by scientists and policymakers, the study was funded to meet participants on three occasions and was often cited by the government in its policies. With this newfound recognition, researchers across the globe started using BCS70 in conjunction with other birth cohort studies to see how members of Generation X were faring compared to other generations. This led to an explosion of new findings on health, education and social mobility. We'll also speak to study participants about their careers and lives during the exciting new decade. See you next week. 50 Years of Life in Britain, powered by UCL Minds. I hope you subscribe to join the celebration.